So, yeah, just in terms of, again, something of the journey that we're taking together, um, last week uh, was our launch Sunday, obviously, and so that's cool. That was a very exciting moment, and uh, we kind of just, we, we start immediately on this journey towards Easter, and because we're not having an Easter Friday service, we will in future years, uh, today's kind of our Easter Friday service, and so... Uh, this is kind of Easter Friday for us, and then next week it's going to be Easter Sunday. Now, I can't wait for next year to roll around. I mean, I'm a visionary, so I live in the future all the time, and I've got to try and bring myself back to the present, because I, I just can't wait to take uh, Bay Vineyard on this journey leading into Easter, because today's really Palm Sunday, and this is Holy Week, and there's so many events that happen throughout the course of this week that are just so central to our faith. And the Easter weekend is the great climax of the Christian calendar. And again, you'll hear this on the Big Picture course, but I just want to repeat it today. We, we're very passionate about stepping into the great, what we call the great tradition of church history. And the great tradition involves things like taking communion regularly, which we're going to do. It places a high emphasis on the creeds as, as the core things that we believe. Uh, but also we um, are going to use the church calendar. So we're going to, that's going to shape us. And what I like to think is that for followers of Jesus, there's two calendars. The most important calendar is the church calendar, where we just immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus every single year. That's the num number one calendar we actually live our lives by, because we want to immerse our lives in His story. And then the second calendar is the one I've got to use to meet you at Tuesday at three o'clock, you know, and, uh, and we've kind of got the other calendar, which is on our iPhones and all the rest of it. But this is uh, the most important part of time in the Christian calendar in terms of what we remember in terms of the events of Easter weekend. It's hugely important. And so today we're going to be looking at Easter Friday and uh, we're going to take a journey. It's kind of like the um, Stations of the Cross a little bit, but all I'm going to do today is kind of do a recap of the story of Easter Friday. And then what we're going to do to finish the service today is we're going to stand together. There's just some deliverance happening over there out in Jesus' name. No jokes. That's a <laughs> as soon as you start talking about Friday, things start happening. Um, we are, we're going to stand together and, take, and, and say the confession. This is why we're grateful we've got the mum's room, which you can hopefully, I think you can actually hear us out there as well, which is good. Um, we're going to stand together and we're going to do the confession. Now, the confession is, you may not have done this if you're not part of a um, mainline church. If you're from a Pentecostal background, this may be the first time you've done it, or it may, this may bring back traumatic memories as a child from uh, you know, services where you, you were half dead. But uh, this, I find this really important. We're going to finish today by standing together and saying the confession together, and then we're going to take communion because this is, again, uh, us remembering uh, the, the blood and the, that was shed and the body that was broken for us. But let's work through the story together and uh, and just to kind of uh, get our heads around what's happening. And it, sorry, just one last thing. Can I encourage you, because we don't have an Easter Friday service going on, to make it a priority to attend an Easter Friday service? And may I suggest that you go to a mainline church, an Anglican church or a, a Presbyterian church? Some of the old school churches, I think, do those events really, really well. And so, you know, feel free to stay there if you find like it, feel like it's home. <laughs> we are planting. That's a risky thing to say. But uh, I would just love us to take seriously the events of this weekend and to make the priority the Christian calendar, not the earthly calendar. And it's not about just going to Taupo for a long weekend. It's actually about that's the weekend we remember that the world got turned upside down because Jesus died and rose again. 
And so wherever you are in New Zealand, it's a, as a Christian, we make that a priority to worship and to reflect and to contemplate what that means. Let's work our way through the story through to the cross. So Jesus had been ministering and teaching throughout Israel. Uh, amazing just to see the way that throughout his ministry, crowds gathered around him and, uh, and were captivated by his teaching. You know, people struggle with the idea of mega churches. Jesus had 20,000 in his church at certain points, you know, just listening to every word that I say. He could preach so beautifully, people would go for um, hours and then they'd forget their lunch and he'd have to do miracles to feed them because they're so captivated and just wanted to hear every word that he said. He healed the sick. He, he was saying like a new kingdom has broken in. And it wasn't, again, the, the miracles, they weren't random acts of kindness. It was God himself stepping into our world and saying, this is the way it's meant to be, which is hugely threatening to the political and religious systems. And we see that uh, unfold throughout the story. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, makes his way to Jerusalem. All the way, he's heading to Jerusalem throughout his ministry. And as he enters into Jerusalem, people begin to sing part of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at the back of people's minds, people are seeing Jesus come in on a donkey. And the donkey is an animal that symbolised peace um, versus a war horse that symbolised war and power. So Jesus comes in on this donkey. If you're a Jewish person worth your salt, and most of them have memorised the Torah, they knew that uh, this, there was a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 that says, See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. So they're like, ooh, what's happening here? And they're worshipping him because they're recognising something in his life. Very interesting that 200 years earlier, again, these are all the echoes for the people watching this unfold. 200 years earlier, all the Jewish people knew that another guy marched into Jerusalem. His name was Judas Maccabees. And he, uh, he came into Jerusalem, but he wasn't riding on a donkey. He was riding on a horse. And he, Jesus veers into a different direction. Everyone that uh, knew the story was hoping that Jesus would come and overthrow the Roman occupation and set up the kingdom of God by destroying the enemies. Now he's going to do that, but in the most unlikely way. And he is going to be raised up as king of all, but not on a throne, but on a cross. But uh, Judas Maccabees went in on a war horse and veered to the right and went towards the Roman garrison. Jesus walks in on a donkey and we see him veer left towards the temple. And so immediately the people, Ooh, what's going on here? And it's a whole different, he's not acting the way that they presumed the Messiah would act. They thought this was going to be the moment where he overthrew the Roman occupation. But he goes and he cleanses the temple and exposes the hypocrisy and the greed and the corruption and continues to teach about the kingdom of God. He turns the religious institution upside down. Now I'm a pastor. I represent a religious institution. <laughs> But there's part of me that loves it, that he bugged the religious folk. He really got up their noses. You know, this whole system of just financial gain and control over people's lives. He's like, this isn't what it's meant to be about. And he got so wild that he's overturning tables. And he's like, this was called to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, Jesus knows that he's going to be arrested. And uh, on the night before he dies, he gets together. And, and this is the time where the Jewish people would celebrate Passover, a hugely symbolic moment. This is where the Israelite people celebrated and remembered that they'd been freed from slavery, from the slavery of Egypt. Now, Jesus once more is going to free us from slavery, but he's going to do it in the most unexpected way. 
But uh, they sit down and they have this Passover meal, which symbolised the old covenant that had been, uh, been, been formed between the Israelite people and God. And that covenant required obedience to the Old Testament law. And so they would have to perform these rituals and these sacrifices. And basically the idea is that they, they would take a, uh, an animal in this Old Testament sacrifice and the idea was that my sin that would hinder from me from entering into the presence of a holy God, that this little innocent animal would take upon itself my sins and in one sense absorb them in itself through its blood that was shed for me. And that would uh, cleanse me so that I could enter into the, the presence of God through the temple. So there's all these rituals that, that would take place for that to happen. And, uh, and Jesus in this meal says, I'm going to make a new covenant there's going to be a new covenant. Now he is going to be the sacrifice and it's his blood that's going to be shed so that we could enter into that holy place. In Jeremiah 31, it says, The day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. But I will put the law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, that he's come to fulfill the law of Moses and to create a new covenant with his people. And so that old covenant was written in stone, but this new covenant is written in our hearts. And so what's interesting, I'm going to talk about grace in a second, but what's interesting is that as you follow Jesus, the law speaks to you. Like the law's been speaking to me this week, not in a condemning way to make you feel rats, but because all the Old Testament law as well as the law that's written on our hearts is, is to cause us to walk in the paths of life. Everything God calls us to is motivated by love, but leads us to life. Everything, there's no exceptions. And so that law, while it's not written now on stone, it is in my heart. And so there's these moments where the Spirit of God is like, eh, you probably shouldn't look at that. <laughs> okay, let's not look at that. That's probably enough, Harvey. All right, let's put that down. You know, that cream bun, that's, there's about four or five of them you've had today, mate. You should probably dial that back. You know, and there's this sense of the, the sense of the Spirit of God just leading us as the laws are written on our heart. But also there's another layer to it that, that's actually quite pragmatic. Jesus is constantly having meals with people. Like this last Passover was his last time with his friends where he sat down and they would just enjoy the richness of a table together. And that's why I'm frothing on the big feed. Like, I'm just so excited. Again, there's a message coming and I've got to try not to preach it today. But it's like there's something we're so rich and beautiful about sitting around together over a good meal where you can talk. And in today's digital age, we were constantly got a screen between us and a relationship. Like that, that's going to be a screen-free night, just so we know. There's only one rule. There's two rules. Host, it needs to be beautiful. And the second rule for everyone else, no phones and stuff. And you know, I know if you're freaking out, go to the toilet if you need to get a hit because you're addicted. But like, it's about, it's about being together. And if, anyway. So, so Jesus has this, uh, this meal with his friends and it's beautifully symbolic. And then he goes to Gethsemane after this meal to pray. And it's interesting how Jesus, his life was one of withdrawal just to, to pray and to be with his Father. And Jesus knows the weight of what's about to come. And in Gethsemane, I think he has a revelation of the, 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 the extent of the pain that he's going to go through, not just physically. We really love focusing on the physical brutality of crucifixion because in the West, we, we've got very little paradigm for this, some of this stuff. And I'm not, not minimising any of that. The crucifixion's horrific. It's one of the worst ways you could possibly die. But actually, the pain is about the sin of the world. 
that's the real pain that Jesus is about to encounter, the brokenness and the, the corruption of the world just, just poured upon him. And so he goes to Gethsemane and um, he prays and he is filled. Um, one theologian said it like this, Christ was like a trapped animal in a garden clawing for some way to escape. He falls to the ground and Luke notes his beads of sweat come like drops of blood and he's praying, Abba, Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me, but not my will but yours be done. This, there's a number of moments in this narrative where Jesus deeply trusts in his heavenly Father in a way that the first Adam didn't. But the second Adam comes and he trusts in what God calls him to. And he... Uh, he has this moment of just unbelievable agony. This is a bit grim, this picture, but it actually hangs in our bedroom. <laughs> it's a bit, a bit heavy, you know, but <laughs> literally just every night. <laughs> but, but I just find it incredibly beautiful as well. There's something about the humanity of Jesus. He's fully human, fully divine, and there's this, this groan oh, that he carries in this moment. And, Following Luke's narrative, Jesus is taken from Gethsemane, he's arrested, he's betrayed by Judas. He goes to, um, so there's three people here that he bounces around according to Luke's uh, narrative. Cepheus, who's the high priest, he's the very religious. He goes to Herod, who, who's very rich and very powerful, and then to Pilate, who's the powerful. So Jesus, basically, Cepheus sends him to his father-in-law, Annas. Annas sends him back to Cepheus. Cepheus sends him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pontius Pilate. And eventually Pilate is in a position where he has to make a call about what happens with this man. But he bounces between the, the very religious, the very rich, and the very powerful. And these three dynamics form together to commit the greatest atrocity to crucify God. So Jesus is brought before Pilate, a Roman governor of the province of Judea, and Pilate's in this tricky position. He wants to exert his authority at this time. And, but also, and part of his role is to, to squash any hint of a political uprising. But there's this niggle in all of them where they're like, they, they deep down know this man's innocent. But all of this kind of pressure starts that's building around him and he quizzes Jesus. Uh, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus remains silent. There's this one moment where he says, it is as you say, and seals his fate. But he, he remains silent. In Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before the shearers of silence, so he did not open his mouth. All of these prophecies are just getting fulfilled throughout this narrative. Now, Pilate's in this interesting position because he has the authority to acquit a prisoner, whether or not they've been convicted and condemned. And in a political manoeuvring way, he He's trying to earn the people's favour and, and, and kind of uh, calm everything down. So he initiates this custom which, uh, in which over Passover the, the people could ask for a person to be released. And in prison at that particular moment, there was a notorious leader who bore the name Jesus Barabbas. And so he says to the crowd, which one do you want me to free? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth? And they all yell, Jesus of Barabbas. And, and Matthew's gospel here is interesting because Matthew, from this point on, is trying to make it clear that, that uh, Barabbas represents us. And Barabbas goes free. 
And Jesus is the one that gets punished. Barabbas deserved his punishment. He was a nasty piece of work. Jesus did nothing but bring grace and mercy and healing and life. And he's the one that gets punished. N.T. Wright, uh, my favourite New Testament theologian, explained this, this moment like this. He said, The human systems that surround Jesus all put him on that cross. Peter and Judas betrayed him. The chief priests in the religious system did their worst. The crowds have cheerfully implicated themselves. And now the Roman administration shows what sort of thing its prized justice really was. But his innocence against him is the clue to the meaning that Matthew wants us to find here. Jesus dies in the place of the sinner, inviting Barabbas and an increasing multitude ever since to walk into freedom. The greatest legal system of the world represented in the Roman Empire and the most noble religion came together in the centre of the world as Jerusalem was considered at that time and at the centre of history. And together they blunder and stumble into an act so wicked, so unjust, so unnecessary and indicative of their own moral bankruptcy that before anything more is said, we can already draw the correct conclusion from these narratives. The man at the centre of the story was indeed dying for the sins of the world. So Jesus is taken, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's flogged, he's abused. And throughout all this time, he lives out the very teaching that he gave on. He's made to carry his cross. And this is so important. He never once retaliates. He never once retaliates to the violence that's been heaped on him. He absorbs it. He breaks that cycle. Finally, he breaks that cycle of you do this to me, I do that to you. The sin of the world and the injustice of all of these systems and powers, all of that is centered on him and he absorbs it. The cycle of retaliation and transference has to end and it does with this man. And so Jesus is led to Golgotha, a hill near Jerusalem, and is crucified on the cross. He is the Passover lamb. He is the innocent man taking the punishment and the Barabbas goes free. And Jesus feels himself to be without the sustaining presence of his father for the first time. And in a bleakness of forsakenness, aloneness, and the desolation of abandonment, the scream splits the sky. Where are you, Abba Father? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? People listening to that would have heard Psalm 22 and they would nod off by heart and they would know that the very next verses say, but I trust you and I commit my spirit to you. Jesus is saying a prompt to those watching, again, reflecting the deep trust that he has. And he dies a death. Jesus' death is a real death. It's a historical fact. His heart stopped, his breathing stopped, his brain stopped. Uh, I read the story uh, where a lady wrote into a question and answer forum uh, about Easter Friday and said this, Dear sirs, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely bewildered. And they replied, Dear bewildered, Beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for seven out, six hours. Run a spear through his side and put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. Sincerely, Charles. <laughs> Please don't. But he's, he's dead. This is God who's come in the flesh. He's, he's died and the Roman soldiers put him in this tomb. Joseph had gifted for this to Jesus and his body's there and they seal this tomb. Like the Romans put a seal around it 
So indeed, it's this airless place. And Now, just to hit pause, we know that the story doesn't end on Friday, it ends on Sunday. And I cannot wait to preach Easter Sunday. It's the best day of the year. It's the... This, the events, every, every event over the Easter weekend is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. We are stepping into the great tradition where over a billion people over these coming days will remember the very story that we're engaging in today. It's a beautiful thing. But we need to, to pause and not rush to Easter Sunday, but to linger in this moment because it reflects uh, the cost at which we were bought. And how loved we are. Salvation was accomplished in this moment. A death, a willed and sacrificial death was an offering for the, the death dealing with the sins of the world. And that death also conquered death. It was the death of death. The death of Jesus is the greatest act of trust in his heavenly Father. It plunges him into the darkness of death, not knowing what lies on the other side, but confident that somehow his Father would vindicate him. Jesus voluntarily disengaged from life and the greatest act of hope, confidence and trust in his heavenly Father. And it wins for him and for everyone else the fullness of resurrection life. It's interesting that on that, cross, on that uh, hill, there were three crosses. There was a cross on which a man hung who rejected Jesus and mocked him and joined in with the crowds. There was also a man who knew that this was the Messiah, who saw Jesus for who he was. And in that moment, it was a, a cross of reception. And in the middle, there was the cross of redemption. And it's, those are the choices that we are faced with today, everyone, to choose whether we reject or whether we receive what's happening on this cross of, reject, of redemption. Brian Zahnt, uh, and if you are joining our church, we've got a secret Facebook group in which community banter happens. And last night I posted a fantastic article by a theologian called Brian Zahnt, and he said this, On Good Friday, all the disparate sins of the world amalgamate into the sin of the world. Whether flowing forward in time or backward in time, every human sin, every act of selfishness, every debasing degradation coalesces in an awful single singularity at the cross. What is the sin of the world? It is Jesus nailed to the tree. That is why on one level the crucifixion will always remain ugly. It is the image of all sin coalesced into a single event. But that's not all the cross is. The cross is also beautiful. The cross is both the awful crescendo of human sin and the sublime apex of divine grace. The cross is beautiful because it is the place where sin is a singularity, is absorbed, forgiven, and transformed into reconciliation. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Luke 22, 23 verse 34. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. The cross just it stands in history as this moment where everything changes if you choose to put your faith in Jesus. And we've got to remember that the cross is for every one of us. The Pharisees and the religious system worked out a, a way that somehow they thought if your behaviour was good enough, then you've pleased God. But the reality is that they were in need of the mercy and grace of God as we are all here today. And the journey of our lives is to discover how much we are in need of the grace and mercy of our God. By His Spirit, He reveals that. Not to make you feel stink. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He does it so that you know how loved and free you are. 
And by His mercy, He doesn't do it like whammo, you're rats. And here's the whole picture of how rats you are. By His grace, He reveals it over time. You're worse than you think you are. Be encouraged. That's been the experience of my life. Like I thought if I dealt with this particular issue in my life, then I'd be pretty holy. And Jesus then by His grace gently just begins to open my eyes to another area of brokenness I've been blind to. I say, oh, I'm in need of your mercy and grace. Some sins escape me today. We're all in need of the mercy and grace of God. And the church is not called to be a parade of flawless people. But we are actually a bunch of people that gather around a flawless Christ who embraces our flaws. We've got to remember that. I don't, I don't want Christians in Napier to have a reputation that they think they're better than everyone else. We are all in need of the mercy and grace of God. The church is not made up of the whole people, but rather of the broken people who find a wholeness in a Christ who was broken for us. And the reality is that God wants to take us from a place of guilt and fear to a place of grace and freedom, but it happens at the cross. It happens at the cross. And it's not fun looking at our brokenness and shame and sin and our humanity. And sin's a word that you don't hear too much these days, I don't think. But I, don't, I like talking about sin because I like talking about grace. And the conversation doesn't end with just how rats we are or how naughty we've been. The conversation always ends with you are forgiven. Be at peace. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He's removed our sins from us. That's where it ends. And we celebrate the mercy and the grace of God. My favourite, I'm going to come into land shortly as we take communion this morning in a second, but my favourite quote on the grace of God is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing German theologian and martyr who died shortly after World War II. And he he, um, he says this in his, his book, uh, his book um, the, uh, the, um, oh, I can't forget it. Anyway, whatever. I think it's called Costly Grace or The Way of the Disciple or something, whatever. Here's, here's my favourite quote because it just captures what grace is perfectly. He says this, Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack it as I go. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. So... Some of you guys last week said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. It's costly because you're going to, God's going to invite you to live a radically different life than the one you've been living. Because the one you've been living will lead you to all sorts of pain and brokenness. And God doesn't want you to take you to those places of death. He wants to lead you to places of life. So it costs you. You know, you, people that may think you're weird, which we are a little, to be really honest and upfront. But here's it. Grace is costly because it defies. But listen, it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. You can follow Jesus Christ because He's for you. He's not against you. Because His expectations on you, His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He says it's costly because it costs a man or a woman his life. You've got to die to yourself to follow Jesus. You can't bolt Him onto the side of your life. That's why I talk about the Christian calendar. When Jesus enters into your life, you can't just welcome him to part of your, you know, we make the analogy, he knocks on the door of your heart. Let me in. And what some of you guys have done, you open up the door and say, you're welcome. But then often it's like, but just not that room and not that room you can hang out in here. In fact, I'd love you to live in this little closet. And you're over here. 
And Jesus is saying, actually, no, I need to be welcomed into every room of your life. Like everything. You've got to die to yourself. And this is the symbolism of baptism. Is that not Jesus is bolted into some extra thing you do on a Sunday, but that your whole life has died and then you come up again, a new creation where everything is framed around the way of Jesus. Everything. And the reason I need the cross is that that's not my story. So I've got to keep coming back to the cross saying, Lord, help me to know what it looks like to live a life absorbed in your way. And He gives grace and mercy and sets me free to be able to do that. Hallelujah. And He teaches me and He transforms me from glory to glory. It's grace because it costs a man his life, but it's grace because it costs a man the only, tr- it gives man the only true life. You, you, you can only come alive in Jesus because He's the source of life. He's the author of life and He's the giver of life. And He wants to breathe His breath of life into your very being. His, the work of sanctification is the, word, the work of bringing us to life more and more and more. Sign me up. The more I yield to Him, the more His life comes into my life. And it's costly because it condemns sin. In Titus it says, The grace of God teaches us how to live holy lives. So I, don't, I can't just abuse the grace of God because that same presence of grace is also the presence of holiness. And you know, I've struggled in my life with a porn addiction in my 20s especially. And, uh, and it, was, it was destroying my life. So I know grace because I know what it feels to feel absolutely rats about myself and to not feel like I don't deserve love. And I, feel, I know what it's like to be covered in shame. And I know what it's like to get on my knees in a room and to ask for God to pour out His mercy and forgiveness on me. And I know what it feels like when grace just washes over me and cleanses me. And in that moment, do I feel like being naughty? Grace, it condemns sin. But listen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, it's grace because it frees the sinner. It frees the sinner. Above all, listen, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. We were bought at a price and what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. But above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son to dare a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. That's why it's grace. It costs God the life of His Son. But He looked at you and He was like, it's worth it. And Jesus looked at you and was like, it's worth it. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? The moment that we are experiencing now when we are cleansed and freed from the hold of sin and death. Like this morning, it's a somber morning because we're looking at Friday. But it ends as we come to the communion table with actually joy. Because I'm not preaching today to make you feel rats about yourself. I'm preaching you so that you just are in awe of the grace and mercy of God and how free and loved you are. And I have not done my job well if that's not where we land. But this is God's heart for you today is that you would know you're loved and you're free. Not because of anything you've done or how good you've been or anything like that. You are free because of the cross. He has taken all of that rubbish that you've done upon himself. And he's like, you're free to go, Barabbas. Let me bring you to life. Let me clothe you with my righteousness. Let me clothe you with holiness. The divine exchange takes place on that cross. And He takes all of our brokenness in exchange. He gives us 
all that he is. Every spiritual inheritance of heaven is ours because of that cross. And in that moment when he died, the curtain in that temple was torn from top to bottom, three inches thick. And that symbolized that you can now freely enter into the Holy of Holies because the the ultimate sacrifice has been given. We're absolutely free to enter into the presence of God because of that cross.